like to thank Dan for leading us in our worship this morning. As we come now to consider God's Word, this year churches around the world are celebrating the 50th and the 500th anniversary of the birth of John Calvin, one of the great founders of the Protestant Reformation. And we're going to begin asking for God's guidance as we look to the scriptures using words of a prayer that he used. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, in whom is the fullness of light and wisdom, enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit, and give us grace to receive your word with reverence and humility, without which no man can understand your truth. For Christ's sake. Amen. An old Italian man was living alone in New York and he wanted to plant his annual crop of tomatoes, which he usually did. It was difficult work. The ground was very hard in his garden. And his only son, Vincent, who used to help him, was locked up in prison. The old man wrote a letter to his son describing his predicament. Dear Vincent, I feel pretty sad this year because it looks like I won't be able to plant my tomato crop. I'm just getting too old to be digging up the garden. I know if you were here, my troubles would be over. I know you'd be happy to dig the plot for me like in the old days. Love, Papa. A few days later, he received a letter from his son. Dear Pop, don't dig up that garden. That's where the bodies are hidden. Love, Vincent. Well, at 4 a.m. the next morning, FBI agents and local police arrived and dug up the entire area without finding any bodies. They apologized to the old man and left. A few days later, the old man received another letter from his son. Dear Pop, go ahead and plant the tomatoes now. That was the best I could do under the circumstances. <laughs> Before Christoph went on holiday, he asked me to give an exposition today of 2 Samuel 5. And as you'll have noticed from uh, listening to it being read, this is quite a difficult chapter to apply to our lives because of the type of material it contains. It contains the story of the capture of Jerusalem and then the account of two battles with the Philistines. My prayer to God is that God will speak to our hearts through this exposition today. As Vincent wrote to his father, this is the best I could do under the circumstances. Now, whether we're interested in golf or not, we've all been fascinated recently by the progress that Tom Watson made in this year's British Open at Turnbury. He defied the odds, he scorned the years, he ignored his recent hip replacement operation to lead that tournament for four days, for most of four days. 
The Guardian's golf writer described his performance on the 18th green on the final day like this. He said he was one weak putt away from the greatest win in golf's history. Of course, he missed the putt. And sadly, he was badly beaten in the playoff. But experts analyzing his round saw the crucial miss for Tom Watson was not that putt on the 18th green, but his failure to get up out of a bunker and into the hole at the 5th green. They reckon that that was the turning point. After that, he became more erratic. He became more weary. And finally, of course, he lost out in the playoff. The turning point for Tom Watson was long before the final defeat. And it's the same in any aspect of life, whether we find victory or defeat. The turning point that leads us to one or the other is often long before the final outcome. Some of you who have suffered serious illness at one time or other and have now recovered will will remember that you didn't realize it at the time, but when you look back after your recovery, you were able to see a point where the recovery began. The time maybe when you were able to stop taking a particular tablet, the day you were able to pull a few weeds in the garden, uh, the day you were able to walk down to the corner of the street. It's only when you look back that you see what was the crucial turning point for you. Now today, we are looking at part of David's life, recorded in 2 Samuel 5. And this section that we read today turned out to be a crucial turning point, not only in the life of David, but for the future of Jerusalem, for the development of Israel, and ultimately for the history of the world. David, the the rural rustic, the Robin Hood figure, the clan leader of tiny Judah, becomes a king with status on the world stage. He becomes a statesman. The people of the 12 tribes of Israel, which were little more than a loose confederation of largely independent groups until this time, become a nation. And also Jerusalem, a small walled town at the center of this isolated group of, (coughs) excuse me, this uh, insignificant group of people, the the Jebusites, it becomes a city that 3,000 years later, is still the center of world attention. So this chapter, from the perspective of history, is of supreme significance. And yet it's a chapter that we don't usually include in any study of the life of David. Now, if you were here last week, you'll remember that David and his 600 men were wanderers being pursued by King Saul. And David, who'd been anointed to be king by Samuel, you'll remember how he respected Saul, how he refuses to harm him. David is eventually made king over the single independent tribe of Judah. King Saul and his son Jonathan, they're killed shortly after this in in a battle with the Philistines. After this again, Saul's final son, King Ishbosheth, 
is assassinated by two of his own guards. The people of the other tribes are now leaderless. And so they come to Judah, to David, and they plead with him to become their ruler. And he agrees. David does a very wise thing. He knows that he has to command the loyalty of all the tribes. And until this time, his headquarters have been at Hebron in the south of Judah. And he's, not, he's very much aware of the traditional divide between Judah and the other tribes. So he decides to build a new, to have a new capital that's on the border between Judah and the northern tribes or Israel. A capital that doesn't belong to either side. He hasn't time to build a new city, and so he does what, what he can. He captures Jerusalem, the capital of the, this little city-state of the Jebusites. It was sitting there in no man's land between the two sections. He strengthens its fortifications. He builds himself a palace there. And having secured a secure base, he, he has two major battles really against one of the most persistent enemies of, uh, of the Jewish people, the Philistines, and he shatters their power. And if you were to read on in Second Samuel and subsequent chapters to what we've read today, you'd see he decides to make Jerusalem also the religious center of the nation. He brings the Ark of the Covenant there. He gets everything ready so that eventually his son Solomon will be able to build a temple as the focus for the Jewish religion. So what we have in 2 Samuel is a very significant turning point for David, for the people of Judah and Israel, for the city of Jerusalem, and indeed for the future of the world. Why do we neglect it? There are two problems, I suppose, for us Christians with this chapter. The problem could be summed up in two words, Hatred and handicap. Hatred and handicap. Now, I don't know what Bible translation you have at home, but whether it's the authorized version or the RSV or the Good News, David, David uses very strong language about the Jebusites in all of these translations. Strong language that the Bible translation we have in the pew here tries to soften. Here's what the, the Revised Standard Version says. David said, whoever would smite the Jebusites, let him go up the water shaft to attack the lame and blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, the blind and the lame shall not go into the house. The NIV that we have here softens that Jesus said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind that are David's enemies. But there's no doubt the idea of motivating his soldiers by encouraging hatred is there. And of course, as you'll all know, there are other references in the Old Testament to what we might call a holy hatred of the enemies of Israel. For us, it's hard to reconcile this uh, with the teaching of Jesus. In the New Testament, we can distinguish between a person and an act. We can love the sinner, but hate the sin. Now, that ability 
wasn't so uh, obvious in the Old Testament. As we know also, of course, Jesus widens the scope of love. He loves those whom his society hated. He even challenged people to love their enemies. So passages encouraging hatred are difficult for us as Christians. And in addition to this, this hatred uh, seems to be tied to the blind and the lame. Now, part of this comes from the context. The Jebusites inside their fortified city seem to have been shouting from the city wall and mocking David, saying, we aren't afraid of you. Even the blind and the lame could defeat you. So David's saying to his soldiers, use the water panel to channel to reach those blind and lame. The next sentence there in verse 8, if you're following in the Bible, is, is slightly more problematic for us. The blind and the lame shall not come into the house. This seems to reflect the, the common prejudice against people with a variety of handicaps and illnesses that the ancient world, including the Jewish people, had. Very different from the practice of Jesus. Jesus defied the conventions of his day. He had a real compassion, as we know, for those regarded as outcasts through illness or disability. So what we have in David's story is an attitude that Jesus again has gone beyond. He has shown us indeed a picture of God who has a special concern for those Not only the blind and the lame, but the leper and the deaf and others excluded from normal society. So, these things are problematic. As well, perhaps, as the the third issue that I'll not talk about today, David adding to his harem. But you can see, for us, we struggle with some of the ideas that we find here. It's, It's easy for us, of course to find uh, out-of-date ideas, undeveloped ideas, defective ideas and attitudes at the time of David. But what we've got to ask as we look at this passage today, what does this say to us? What does this say to us about our attitudes? How are we when it comes to hatred? Whom do I hate? Are there indeed any whole groups of people that I hate? We hear stories every day of uh, terrible nastiness in our own society, cruel hatred. Now, we may never pour petrol petrol through somebody's letterbox or attack their children in the street, but if we think sometimes of the words we've spoken, the thoughts we've entertained, is hatred still finding a place in our hearts? Are we more like David than Jesus? And what about handicap? The person with leprosy, the woman with the issue of blood, the man with the physical deformity, all these were social outcasts in David's day and Jesus' day. Even blindness was regarded as evidence of sin. You remember the disciples asking Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus changed all that. He sought to transform people's attitudes to disability and disease. We've got to ask ourselves today, 
What about our attitudes as followers of Jesus? For some time I've played golf with two friends fairly regularly. About two years ago, one of them was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He still likes to play golf, but he's become very, very slow. My other friend and I could go out to play without letting him know that we were playing. Should we? Would it be right? Someone with a chronic illness, the person who suffered a severe stroke, the person who's become wheelchair-bound, the the friend who's had a bout of mental illness. So often, these people can find themselves more and more excluded by their friends. As Christians, especially as we grow older, we've got to be very careful about those whom the world finds it convenient to forget. You see, we may not kill, but we can destroy such people, destroy their confidence, destroy their happiness, destroy their lives. We can see the defects of those who lived in David's day, the limitations of their understanding. But what about ourselves? Hatred and handicap can challenge us about our attitudes and about our living. Are we following in the footsteps Of Jesus Christ. And what else does this story tell us? There is, of course, the very positive example here of the wisdom of David in trying to choose a neutral capital where everybody would feel comfortable. There's the good sense he showed in establishing Jerusalem as a secure and sound base before he began getting involved with his neighbors. However, perhaps one or two other things that we've got to think a little bit about. David must have been very pleased with himself in the stories here recorded in 2 Samuel 5. He must have been very pleased with himself when he was approached by representatives of all the tribes and promoted to be king of all Israel. He must have been flushed with success after his capture of Jerusalem. He must have been flattered by the gifts received from his neighbor, Hiram, king of Tyre. After years on the run, often hungry and humiliated, he'd become established. He'd become recognized. He'd become someone of importance. What does he do? He moves into a bigger house. He builds himself a palace. He takes some extra wives and mistresses or concubines. Things that were normal for people in his position to do in those days. The simple shepherd boy from backwoods Bethlehem becomes a person of importance and he takes to himself the status symbols of his day to prove it. And of course the trend that begins here where he feels now that he can have what he wants, results before long in him really going off the rails and having Uriah killed so that he can take his wife Bathsheba to be part of his harem. There's nothing wrong with being successful. But success can be dangerous. It can lead us off the rails. 
What God needs in the world and in our society today is people who will work hard and be successful, but will not allow the world's expectations of successful people to tempt them from the way of Jesus Christ. The symbols of success for us are the increasing visibility of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, not of the things by which the world measures success. Let me finish with the Philistines, the people of the sea. That's what their name means in Egyptian. The Philistines were the traditional enemies of Israel, occupying the coastal plain between southern Israel and the border of Egypt, a sort of greater Gaza. They were constant competitors with the tribes of Israel for control of the land between the the coastal plain and the highlands of Judea. As long as David was simply ruler of the single tribe of Judah, the Philistines seemed to be content to tolerate his rule. But once he becomes king of all Israel, he becomes too powerful to be trusted. And so they make two efforts to defeat him. First, they try to kill him. And when that fails, they try to split his territory in two and so weaken his effectiveness and rule. The Philistines come inland along the valley of Rephaim. During the first attack, quite close to Jerusalem, David succeeds in overcoming them and forcing them to flee. And it must have been quite a comprehensive defeat. They flee, leaving their precious idols behind. David must have been deeply disappointed then because another large force of Philistines advances up the same valley, perhaps the next year. David looks down from the hills around Jerusalem. He would have seen right down that valley for miles. He could have seen them coming. And he prays to God and asks, what should he do? He doesn't rush just down and fight immediately. And he hears God speaking, don't go straight at them. Circle round behind them and attack them in front of the balsam trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, move quickly, because this will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. By the way, older translations talk about mulberry trees. Uh, We don't really know what the tree was, and it doesn't really matter. The important thing to notice here is the obedience of David. You can see a growing maturity now as he is established in the face of this second crisis and second serious threat. He prays to God. He does as God directs. He waits on God's timing and he ends up victorious. As we face situations that challenge and threaten us, Do we just go straight at them? Do we take time to pray? Do we follow the leading of that still small voice within? Do we have the patience and the wisdom to wait till God indicates that it's time to act? When the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees is heard, you move quickly because that will mean that the Lord has gone out in front of you.
God has a plan for each one of us. We face no enemy alone. Whether that's a a financial problem or a career difficulty or a health problem or indeed an individual who hates us. I don't know who or what your enemy is. Who are the figurative Philistines in your life? But I do know that when we are under attack, the steps are there in this passage to tell us what we should do. Pray. Listen. Wait upon God's guidance. Obey. Take action. And the God who rescued David from the Philistines will go before us and will rescue us from whatever would destroy us. So as we begin another week and seek to serve our Master, let's place our lives afresh in God's hands now. Let's pray.